I want to first start off by saying big thank you to all the wonderful people who are supporting the Patreon for this podcast. They are getting some awesome bonus stuff, like special recordings, sneak peeks of artwork and other projects that I'm working on, and they are helping grow this podcast. They are helping move towards the goal of providing transcriptions so that deaf people can take part in these conversations. And they are also helping support the work that I do, running down guests, getting people on the show, coordinating people in different time zones and on other sides of the planets. And finally, they're helping improve the production value of this podcast by allowing me to start considering acquiring better equipment and get away from some of the janky duct tape together process I've been doing for a long time. If you dig the podcast, jump over to patreon.com slash the hermit's lamp and pitch in. Every dollar helps. So welcome to another installment of the Hermit's Lamp podcast. I'm here today with Langston Khan, and we are, uh, I know Langston from the internet and from uh, seeing a lot of really interesting uh, images of masks and conversations about mask work. And that's kind of what piqued my interest. Um, but I know that there's a lot more going on than that. So tell me, for those who don't know you, what, what's going on? What are you up to? Yeah, hi. Um, so I'm a shamanic practitioner um, primarily. So what that means is that I help people with things like soul retrieval, um, shadow retrieval, ancestral healing, essentially any wound of the soul or that's located in the spirit world that someone might have, um, I'm helping them to see what are the sort of relationship between those wounds and the challenges they're currently facing in their life. So often people are bringing to me like many different types of challenges that they're experiencing um, around, uh, you know, stuck places in their life or areas of big transformation that's needed. Because usually when someone's coming to me, they've reached a point where they're so frustrated and they've tried a bunch of different practitioners that they're willing to let die the current self they are for the sake of the person they could be, you know, the person who no longer has the challenges they're currently facing. And so that's usually at the intersection where I'm working, helping to sort of midwife and facilitate that transformation or even death to allow that new self to be born. Um, And how that plays out in my own practice is that I'm, you know, part of many different traditions um, and uh, practices, but the, the tradition that is sort of what I call my heart tradition is um, the cycle teachings or the last mass community. Um, and that's sort of this uh, five-year training program and also community that helps people just to sort of step into spiritual adulthood in a sense. And um, so for me, that was the first place that I really felt myself being um, having questions answered that I had had for a long time about wounds that I felt within myself. And it's not a training to be a shamanic practitioner, but during the course of just sort of following the path of my own healing, that 
it became clear to me that that was work that I was being called to do as well on behalf of other people. Yeah, it's, it's always, um, I find that intersection between being called to be a teacher or healer and our own healing so fascinating, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that I see some people, I see lots of people doing it in lots of different ways, but I think it's always fascinating uh, where people are beginning with their own healing and then emerging and then being called to that next level of offerings. And also kind of the opposite where, you know, I see lots of people who go into something to become a teacher or healer or, you know, uh, something along those lines. And then through that realize that they need their own healing. And sometimes even then, you know, realize they don't need any of the rest of that. You know, Mm -hmm. I find that fascinating how that journey can sort of shape and open up a road for us that isn't necessarily what we imagined it to be. Mm -hmm. You know, do you find Mm -hmm. that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I set out on this path, I, I, my, one of my um, cohort members was actually reminding me, I said, well, one thing I know for sure is I never want to want to do this kind of work <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> on behalf of other people. Um, because it, at that time, it just, it just was so out of my vision for my life at that time and who I was. Um, I was having a lot of emotional difficulties and physical difficulties and what my main focus was also was a lot of the creative work in film that I was doing at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but as, again, like you were saying, as I followed the path of my own healing and really began to chase down the roots of some of these challenges I was facing in my life, um, I began to reclaim and, and rediscover parts of myself that really loved doing this type of work and really started to remember how throughout my life, people had always come to me for this type of help in a sense. Um, though at the time I didn't really have those tools uh, mm. to share with them. So I just could be a good listener in a sense. And that felt very frustrating to me. I also had a lot of issues with, um, as I think many people do, uh, with taking on others' emotion um, and martyring myself in that way. And so mm. it took me a long time of really learning to have a new relationship with my own boundaries to be able to engage with people with compassion without feeling the need to take on everything that they were experiencing. Um, just being able to be present before that would even seem like a possibility to me to be doing that type of work um, on behalf of other people where you're getting so intimate on a soul level with their stuff, really literally stepping inside of it and navigating it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine, when I first started working as a reader, you know, this friend of mine, Sam, said to me, he's like, you know, your first order of business is to go dig into anything that you've got left that's unresolved and get that stuff tidied up. <laughs> because otherwise, you're just going to run into everybody else's pain and it's going to trigger yours. And then you're going to do what with it, right? Mm-hmm. How are you going to be able to to channel that, to bring it through, to be clear with that, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. it's very difficult, right? But and, and it's really unglamorous too. Like that's yeah. the other thing I think about it. You know, I think about when I started my sort of spiritual journey in ceremonial magic and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I never anticipated that I would like be digging into my own junk and, you know, doing a couple of years of therapy and, and all that really unglamorous stuff that, that made me good at what I do today, mm-hmm. but that, that just wasn't even foreseeable on the horizon when I started, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that intersection is really interesting that I don't 
I think in Western culture, because we're sort of swimming in this um, ideology of uh, separating out these different parts of ourselves so much. We don't really see the connections always. It's like, oh, there's my work, emotional work I do with my therapist and there's my spiritual work I do mm-hmm. a lot or whatever, you know, and then there's my um, physical work I do at the gym and then there's my emotional work or something or mental work. And uh, I think the more, especially we move along a path of connecting with the spirit world in some way, the more we start seeing or being shown those intersections and um, how important it is to be actively evolving each of those kind of in that alchemical principle of as within, so without that, as you were saying, you know, the more you're connecting to the spirit world, the more opportunity there is for distortions to come through you Mm -hmm. or, or actually to do harm if we're not also um, engaging these other parts of ourselves and and keeping them balanced in that process, I think. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like the, uh, the world card right with those sort of four animals in the corners you know each representing uh one part of us right that if they're all together then they make this beautiful space in the middle where everything can be balanced and free and emerge but if something's out of sync then we're going to slide out of that space into something else which maybe is not as joyful or pleasant or functional you know yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i'm curious um you mentioned practicing multi, multiple traditions. How how do you juggle that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I so I think part of it for me that's been really helpful is note, and of course, it shifts all the time. But but yeah. noticing what each tradition's sort of unique genius or gifts are in relationship to my life, in a sense of I'm someone who, even though I practice many traditions, I'm not trying to sort of combine them all into one uber tradition or one, you know, uber paradigm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm keeping them very separate and practicing them as I've been taught them in their respective traditions. But my shamanic practice, um, because it's so much working at the essence of things and in a sense, almost like at the, the source code level, it feels like organically sometimes spirits or cosmologies from other traditions come into that work a bit. And that's kind of like my hub where I can connect in with all those other traditions. But at the same time, um, I'm not uh, sort of mixing practices. Like I'm not just deciding, Oh, I have the right to say I'm an initiated priest in tradition because um, I have this level of intimacy with spirit in this other tradition. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, it helps to have sort of physical ordinary reality things that I'm connecting each tradition to. So for example, maybe, well, like, you know, I'm, I'm involved in um, a research tradition. So let's say with my warriors, I'm focusing on one thing right now in my life. And then I'm also involved in uh, Kimbanda, um, which is an Afro-Brazilian tradition. And so in that tradition, I'm focusing on something else maybe currently in my life with those particular spirits. And I find that helps me avoid getting lost in sort of the sea of voices that are out there in these traditions. Mm-hmm. And also um, when something actually happens in relationship to that work I'm doing with those spirits, I know what spirit is actually helping me or guiding me in that work. And I'm not thinking, oh, maybe it was this or maybe it was that. And just like getting sloppy in a sense with 
who I'm giving offerings to or who I'm thanking for this work. Um, that's sort of how I keep seeing in a sense. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, it's fascinating for me personally because I don't practice multiple traditions. I only practice, you know, the one tradition, the Orisha tradition. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I'm always, I'm always curious about how that balance works for people, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I find personally that, um, you know, I, I have only have so much attention and energy and, you know, I, I find that, uh, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, really just a personality difference or, or a circumstance difference maybe, but, you know, I find myself unable to sustain very many different things, you know, and, and it's funny cause I look back historically and it's like, when I learned tarot, I just got into Alistair Crowley's Toth deck. And then I read with that deck for like 15 years mm-hmm. and it never even occurred to me to get another deck, you know, mm-hmm. I knew they were out there, but they just didn't exist in my world. There was the deck, and there was the book he wrote, and that was the end of the conversation for so long, you know. So yeah, it's, it's, I'm always I'm always really interested about how that works, and I can see how, um, especially if you're you're focused on a a dialogue around a particular thing or a particular area or topic, that that could really help um, build that connection and really keep it nice and, and clean. So yeah, yeah, and I just find it helps. Um, shrines avoid getting dusty in a sense too like if you know you have this concrete thing that's important to you in your life that you're working on with these particular spirits in your life um, not to make it a utilitarian relationship like obviously it's mm-hmm. really intimacy and growth and there's a lot of mystery there but grounding that relationship in a specific aspect of my life I'm working on helps me to um notice when that relationship is falling by the wayside because probably that thing in my life is also falling by the wayside mm-hmm. yeah it makes a it makes a practice that you can tend and work at right as opposed yeah. to just being like yeah, yeah i got all those people they're in the cupboard it's good you know <laughs> yeah it's totally. like, yeah maybe not so much right or only going to them when some disaster is happening or something you know yeah well, yeah there's always <laughs> that for sure yeah. um yeah. so i was i'm also really you know you mentioned earlier um something along the lines of people come to you when they're ready to let their old self die. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. I guess I said that in a very dramatic way, but yeah, it's, it's lovely. It, I, I did. Yeah, totally. What it, what I think that looks like is a person uh, usually, you know, not always. I have some clients that come to me when they're, you know, things are going fairly well, but they just need more information about something or we need mm-hmm. to make a shift in some way. But the majority of people I say who come to me, they're in a lot of emotional um, distress or physical distress or mental distress in their life. There's some big thing that feels completely immovable to them that they're knocking their heads up against. And so a lot of my job in that situation is looking at what is the true root of that challenge that they're experiencing currently Mm. through the eyes of my helping spirits in the spirit world. Now, sometimes that might be soul loss. So what soul loss is um, in sort of a contemporary shamanic context, but, but also across many indigenous traditions is the sense of a part of yourself that leaves either due to you abandoning it or it choosing to leave because your life just felt too painful for it to continue to exist in it. Or there can also be in the case of sorcery, someone taking that part of you, whether unconscious sorcery or conscious sorcery. Now, 
when I retrieve that part of the person, I'm tracking that challenge, the energy of that challenge they're currently facing to where that part of them left. And I have to know, I have to find out through tracking the energy, what age that part of them is, what sort of emotional or psycho spiritual landscape it's in and describe that to the person. And then I have to give that part of them, whatever energy it's needing to feel safe enough to be able to come back into their life. Mm. So when they finally come back, the person has already spent maybe much of their life with this hole within them that they've developed a lot of skillful survival mechanisms to avoid touching into like coping mechanisms in a sense. Sure. So when that part of you comes back, it feels really uncomfortable at first often. Sometimes it just feels like a relief because maybe the person's done a lot of emotional work to change those survival mechanisms, but often they bring back some of the emotions of their past and they also, um, are bumping up against all of those mechanisms you developed to avoid engaging with that part of you. So the person has to begin engaging with that soul part in the integration process to ask it, what do I need to start doing or stop doing for it to fully Mm. integrate with me? And in taking those actions and in pushing into those uncomfortable emotions, that's where the true transformation occurs. There's usually some influx of energy right after the session as well, but, but for many people, like the, the actual shift, like what I was talking about, that death happens as they're integrating that part of themselves back because eventually there's no longer a part to talk to. The part is them or it's come back into them and they're a new person. The person, because retrieving that one part changes your whole self. It's not like just a puzzle piece that you put back in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And that's definitely what I hear. I've definitely heard people talk about it like it's a puzzle piece, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was having some problems in my marriage and then I did a soul retrieval and now everything's good. And it's like, wow, that's some <laughs> mighty magic. Wow. Yeah. What does that mean? How did that happen? What the, mm-hmm. How is that in action, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that, and I think that that's a, a part of, uh, I mean, really every spiritual tradition mm-hmm. that that people don't really talk about much right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you do the work and you get initiated or you do a soul retrieval or you you know you you go out in the woods and do your wandering and, and talk with something and come back but then there's that that act of integration right and there's that act of living with that transformation and i think that that's such a such an under under communicated about piece of this equation right because without that work you know it's it's uh it's kind of like my shoulder that i dislocated right they put it back in place it's fine right but if i do certain things it'll start to slide out of place again now like it's never you know the 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 history of it requires uh attention and, and work to keep it in that good relationship and not to say that, that these things require all that kind of ongoing work, but, but it's not as easy as, yeah, we just put it back and everything's good now. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so part of the work I also do is on the more emotional level, um, which is separate from my shamanic healing work around helping people to sort of use triggers or stuck places um, things that are making them amp up or shut down in their life or feel much younger than they are to track those back to the root in their body where they made a decision, maybe as a child or just younger to survive. 
um, mm-hmm. in that moment, which is slightly different than a moment of soul loss, which is really more extreme level of that completely detaching in space and yeah. time from you. But there's also plenty of times when we just make decisions to survive um, because we think we're not going to be loved if we don't make those decisions or we're going to be abandoned or isolated or hurt in some way. Um, and But that part of us gets stuck continuing to make that same decision again and again. Mm-hmm. So then we have to, through these sort of emotional techniques, show up for that part of ourself that made that decision in a way that the adults or the teachers or the authority figures in their life couldn't show up for them at that time. And so I find it's really interesting to see how that type of work intersects the soul retrieval and the integration process. Because often when the soul part comes back with those emotions from the past, now I'm having to guide the client in becoming that compassionate adult they didn't have at that time that can welcome that part of themselves home and give them the space and grounding they need to feel safe to be a kid and feel those feelings without feeling like if they feel them, they'll be abandoned again in some way. Yeah. 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 Feelings could be some intense business, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, (laughs) yeah. And, and working to, um, working to be able to experience and own a full spectrum of feelings as a human being. Mm-hmm. is also not really that easy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much, uh, all of these kinds of challenges, you know, whether the, the traumatic and soul loss ones or the sort of uh, smaller scale, you know, more ongoing kind of processes, you know, it's really easy to start to shut stuff down and dis- disassociate or, or build scripts that, it, you know, allow us to adapt to them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. So when you, when people come to you, are they looking for healing? Are they looking for, um, to, to achieve something? What, what, like what kind of, what's the motivation? What kind of thing do you see? Cause like you, I people often only come to me when, when things have gotten bad, right? <laughs> they, yeah. They're like, you know what? I like, I literally almost can't get out of bed in the morning. Can mm-hmm. I get a reading? And I'm like, sure. You know, mm-hmm. but you know, but, where, where are people at when they're coming to you? What do you, what do you see with that? There's different things people want. I think that usually the common thread is some kind of transformation needs to occur that they're not always cognizant of that in the moment. Mm-hmm. They, they might just know I'm in pain, you know, and I need to make this pain stop. That's, that's usually a common, a common thread. Or there might be a sense of, I've just been trying to shift this for so long and it feels like nothing I do works. So I need some other perspective or or guidance Mm -hmm. in that. Those are usually the two main places people are coming from. Um, I've had people come with chronic pain issues. I've had people come with just um, after really intense breakups and they're just feeling like everything has come into question. Um, I've had people come with just really terrifying spiritual experience they don't know how to explain that they're needing to bring mm. into context and sort of mend or heal their relationship with the spirit world in a sense. Um, money can be a common thing, you know, just to struggle with finances and stuff. I think that's in everyone, anyone in the spiritual sure. community finds that <laughs> people coming to them with a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the other things that you brought up, which I super dig because it's really a place where I do a lot of work myself with people, um, is like around ancestral healing, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, one of the things that I do a lot of work with is noticing people's, um, you know, the ancestral legacy that has continued on to this person, right? And working with that to sort of disrupt the ways in which the person is now carrying that legacy forward so that they, you know, they can mend that and find their way forward. But what kind of stuff are you doing with people around that? Mm-hmm. Well, oftentimes when I'm doing ancestral healing with someone, it's because an ancestral pattern has showed up in the course of a shamanic healing session. So when I'm going into a session, I'm not assuming I know what the, like I'm not assuming I know someone is experiencing soul loss. It might be soul loss, it might be ancestral stuff, it might be shadow stuff, it might be like a depossession needed. I'm just going in and trusting that my helping spirits will guide me what's needed. So sometimes where I'm pointed to is the ancestral realms. Um, And a few clues I have that that might be the case is often if someone's um, experiencing something that almost feels like possession, like they have a belief or an action they're taking, they know isn't quite true and know isn't the right action, but they just can't quite seem to stop making it. Like even as they're doing Mm. it, they know it's not the right thing to do, but they still do it anyway. Um, Or, there's this sense of um, just overwhelm with a pattern. They've done all of this good emotional work, therapeutic work, you know, magical work to change. And yet it's still just, they like climb out from under it and then just overtakes them back like a wave, almost like clockwork again and again. Mm. Often those are signs that there's some kind of ancestral component involved because in my way of seeing things, when that's the case, when there's an ancestral component, no matter how much work we do on ourselves, if we haven't resolved the problem at the root in the ancestral realms where it's located, and that's still going to keep showing up in some way, mm-hmm. because the sort of the, the, the dead or the, the unresolved dead um, try to resolve their lives through their descendants in a sense um they're they don't have free will anymore because they don't have a body any longer and so they're trying to resolve the mistakes they made or the resentments or anger or or sadnesses regrets that they had in their life through their descendants but they don't know how to do that because they're just still stuck with the same patterns they set up during their life so it's yeah, just, all they can do is reenact some version of what they already did exactly yeah. Yeah, they're just swimming. It's so aware swimming in that as their descendants, all those mistakes and, and old beliefs that aren't mm-hmm. true, that aren't based in reality. And so because our ancestral stuff is at the blood level and we're feet we're swimming in it since we're born, often those things just feel like you know, like you wake up and you go to work and you go home and the sun sets and the sun, you know, rises and there's never enough money. That's just part of like reality, like the sun setting and rising, never enough money. Um, Or like, you know, I have to sacrifice myself to be loved. Like, you know, just there's these beliefs or stories that we just feel like are just how the world works. We just take for granted. And those are often the ones that are rooted in our ancestral patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we can see them if we look um, going down our um, father's line or mother's line. Um, And so, how I do that work often is I'm using a construct that allows me to move into the ancestral realms and go track back to the earliest time that pattern got set up. Because oftentimes it's not just one ancestor that's holding this pattern. It's, no, no. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like started with one, but then it snowballed down the lines and got worse and worse and worse with each generation. 
Um, mm-hmm. And you can see that as you're looking back at your family history, if you're, if you're lucky enough to have a knowledge of some of those stories and, and understanding of your family. Um, and so I'm going to the earliest place that pattern started and working with that ancestor to clean up their mess, essentially. And then I'm outlining what those patterns are that, that got set up in that life. Um, and I should say, often it's not like some big crazy curse or some like horrible thing. Sometimes it's horrible things, but oftentimes it's just a mistake someone made that resulted in, you know, in a moment of tiredness or, or just fear uh, uh, that someone made a bad decision and, yeah. and it resulted in this horrible thing and they died and it didn't get resolved and then it just kept getting worse and worse throughout the generations. Well, you know, you don't have to, like, if you think you go back, like, say, say you go back, like, the previous four generations, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how many horrible things have <laughs> happened in the world during that time, right? Like, totally. famines and depressions and wars and, mm-hmm. and, you know, all sorts of horrible violent acts and genocides and, and all sorts of, you know, astounding things. And, you know, I, I find that, like, when we're doing ancestral work, it's not about, like you say, some, like, curse or, you know, like, it's it's rarely, like, well, 25 generations ago, you know, <laughs> blah, blah. It's like, no, you know, like, there, there, are these, there are these people and they died in this way or they lived this, through this horrible experience. And that's continued to then shake down, snowball, roll through those generations, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, how much violence and... and abuse and, and alcoholism and all sorts of other things just have been lingering in our world in the last century or so. Absolutely. It's a tremendous amount, you know, and it's not to say that there was some golden era before that either. Cause I, I have no idea and I wouldn't say so, but, but we don't have to look back that far unless, as you say, that line continues further and further. So, and I think one of the, you know, again, I don't want to idealize indigenous communities, but I think there is a way in which that you can see how bad it's gotten in contemporary Western culture compared to some earlier indigenous communities in that when you look at the spiritual technologies of those communities, a lot of them don't have tools actually for doing this kind of level of deep ancestral healing of patterns that have gone on for generations. It's more, they have a lot of really precise and powerful tools for addressing issues of the recently dead or maybe one or two generations back but because there is a understanding of responsibility for our dead and tending that line and and certain people in the family step up to take that responsibility of keeping that line healthy and whole and tended and certain people in the community do that as well and i feel we're seeing the fallout from what happens when you stop doing that or considering those practices in a sense for sure yeah nobody's nobody's taking care of these spirits in the same way nobody's doing healings or uh extended rights for them that sort of facilitate this stuff right yeah you know it's sort of like well we go we say some prayers we put them in the ground or put them in a vase and and then we're done with it right like that's the end we're good (laughs) now we can get on with our life yeah yeah it's like there's a way in which funerary practices have become much more about the living then whereas you look in indigenous communities like say for example the the dagara culture of burkina faso where they have these beautiful grief ceremonies where people are, you know, crying and and wailing and and really allowing that grief to be moved so that the dead can move on and not hold all these attachments. And also people are like gathering together and they're not just saying, you know, don't speak ill of the dead. There's whole rituals around 
um, saying, hey, this person messed up and, and they may be angry. And so I wish that could be remediated. I don't know if they can be now. Maybe someone in the village company, maybe they can't. And this is a really good thing that person did. And just like hashing it out in a way that helps facilitate that person's process of really moving on and reconciling their life and getting to where they're needing to go mm-hmm. rather than just focusing on the, the living. Yeah. And it's one of the, like, when I teach mediumship type work to people, it's one of the first things that we start with is just because they're dead doesn't mean that they've changed at all. Right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe they have, you know, maybe they, maybe they've evolved, maybe they got a perspective, but maybe they just carried that stuff over to the other side and now they're going to continue it from there. Like, you know, there's no, there's no clear guarantee in that kind of way. Absolutely. So when you're, when you're talking about um, working with the land of the dead and stuff, are you talking about um, like traveling in your spirit there? Or are you talking about um, like a meditative influence in, interface? Like mm-hmm. what does that look like in practice for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I'm doing journey work, what I'm doing is I, when I have a client over, I'm beating a drum and I have a blindfold on and we're both lying down and I'm speaking aloud after a moment of like some certain songs I have to sing and certain offerings I need to make and, and tending my shrines in a certain way. Then I'm going into this deep trance state where I am narrating out loud what's happening as I'm navigating the spirit world. So when mm-hmm. I'm going into the ancestral realms, I'm in that trance state in my spirit traveling into this um, sort of cosmology hub that I have where I do a lot of my work. And then I'm moving into a construct that I've created with my helping spirits um, in the tradition that I'm part of that's allows me to interface in a safe way with sort of the ancestral realm, specifically the unresolved ancestors that are in the, in haven't quite made it to truly the ancestral realms. Mm. Um, So Another thing that I have to do before I do that is I have a special mask that I've made, which my spirits have told me certain things to do with it that make me kind of look like a dead person. Um, So I'm not swarmed while I'm there by all these sort of restless or unresolved dead people. Um, And I'm free to just be tracking with some of my ancestor helping spirits, those energies down their lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what I'm doing is I'm, once I've tracked the problem, then I'm sort of moving into the life that that person lived. So I wouldn't say I'm going actually into the ancestral realms of that time. That's kind of like a mis, misspeaking. It's more that I'm, I'm moving into the area of this construct I've created that sort of gathers up the person's unresolved dead and then right. using that to interface with that unresolved dead person's life and engage with them there where this unresolved energy first happened. Mm-hmm. And do you find, you know, like I, I always find it very interesting sort of all these possible distinctions between elements of, of the dead and, and, you know, is it, is it this, are you, uh, forgive me if the terms don't make sense to you, but please just correct me. But like, are you interfacing with like what people might call like their Akashic record of this person, mm. like that sort of universal store? Are of, of that that information are you uh interfacing with the actual spirit of a person who's an ancestor who's dead are you uh in the energy of this person that you're working with and where that residual is of that thing for them like what 
what kinds of things are we talking about if it's possible to to draw any of those distinctions or if they're if they don't make sense then let me know but yeah well you know all this stuff starts to break down a little bit when you when you try to put it into language in that way i feel like but um i wouldn't say it's the akashic records to me Mm -hmm. that has you i'm not i've done some work with what you might call the akashic records but uh it's very much a sort of immortal soul level record to me it's like this 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 tracking of souls as they move through reincarnations in a sense is one way of looking at it actually i'm not sure if that's like the most correct way but that's the way i see it and whereas ancestors to me are the sum total of a person's uh life actions that they've taken um when we look at it in congo cosmology and you're looking at like the Kalunga, it's like there's this whole sea of the dead. And when you're calling on a specific ancestor and saying their name and telling their story, it's like you're animating a wave out of that sea of the dead with that person's mask. And then you can draw upon them for wisdom and guidance and strength. But in a sense, you're as you're healing your ancestral lines and engaging with your ancestors, you're learning to engage more and more skillfully with that see of the dead in a sense that chorus of voices that are the ancestors mm. um and so with these people that are unresolved that i'm working with um i don't technically put them in the ancestor category because they haven't fully moved on from this from the from the living they're kind of stuck here in a sense by their unresolved issues and they haven't like in a sense you know, again, it gets hard to talk about this across cosmologists. Every cosmology is very different. But in a broad yeah. sense, what I see is supposed to happen is these ancestors are meant to go um, to a place where they can reconcile their life after they die. Then they're meant to go make the journey to the ancestral realms, probably supported with lots of offerings and prayers and help getting there. So they have like, you know, food and water on the way. And then once they make it there, there's this sense of sort of unifying with um, for lack of a better word, like source or that sense of oneness and connection to spirit in that very pure form. And then they become someone who carries both the understanding of what it was to be a human incarnate mm-hmm. on earth and what it is to be pure spirit. So they have that unique bridging wisdom. And then they can choose if we call them back and ancestralize them to come back as true ancestor helping spirits that can guide us and support us. But if they haven't made that journey yet, if they're just stuck here mired in their, you know, shit, for lack of a better word, yeah. then uh, they are, to me, not yet true ancestors. And so when I'm in this realm, that's this construct, it's more, like you said, I'm tracking sort of where the person's energy intersects with the, their lineage and the bloodlines that are flowing through them. And I'm sort of gathering up their unresolved debt in this construct and using that construct to track a specific pattern down a line to see where it originates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I I think that uh, I'm always curious about these questions because they're tremendously difficult to answer. And thank you for your wonderful uh, conversation on it. Like I think that it really is truly difficult to speak clearly and definitely to speak universally about these things. Um, And I think that it's really clear to also, it's really helpful to be clear about what is what is and what isn't going on, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's very different to like uh, call up Uncle Bill 
you know, and actually have Uncle Bill as a dis- discrete, separate entity with their complete own consciousness show up versus have uh, some interface of Uncle Bill and our energy and their whatever spirit is, is around and like all that kind of stuff that's amalgamated in ways that um, that can feel very much like there's a, a spirit there. You know, or can can reenact that kind of performance, mm-hmm. but isn't necessarily actually a separate uh, being in and of itself. So, yeah, I think that that's really really interesting. You know, which kind of brings me to uh, one of the other things, which I think that causes sometimes this kind of um, I don't know what the right word for it is uh, over interpretation or over identification with fragmentary pieces of, of lineage and, and ancestral stuff, mm-hmm. which is where that shadow stuff feeds into that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I've definitely have seen many times um, where that kind of a person's shadow uh, instead of, instead of drawing from the, the world of the ancestors to feed that energy actually comes out of their own shadow self in a way and mm-hmm. animates that, that piece or that structure in a way that, that gives a very different kind of thing and causes all sorts of problems. So, so mm-hmm. I'm curious about, you know, your work with shadows, obviously, because like it's one of the big things that motivated me to be like, get you on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, where you see that in ancestral stuff kind of overlapping, if there's something with that too. Yeah, that's a really excellent question. I love what you said about that, the shadows animating the dead, because it's actually like almost the exact same words I've used myself to describe that experience. Um, in our community, actually, our shamanic community, there was a time when many people in the community were not quite bringing to completion their shadow work before they got to year four when we start doing a lot of the ancestor work. And yeah. so when they got to this construct that we used to engage with the unresolved ancestors, just like you said, their shadows were animating those ancestors. So it was terrifying to be around those unresolved dead people um, because our shadow has so much fear and self-sabotage and, and you know, anger wrapped up in it. Um, but so I love that description you gave, but just to, to go back a bit and say how I view what shadow is, because it's a big word that a lot of people have. Yeah, please. Of. Um, I see shadow as the parts of ourself that, they're perfectly good, authentic, beautiful parts of ourselves that we have disowned and buried in our unconsciousness because mm-hmm. our mind decided if I embody this part of me, I will die. Um, and again, you know, for a child, I will die can mean because you're not going to be loved. If they don't love me, but they won't feed me tomorrow because you're going to be abandoned because you'll be isolated because you'll be banished. You know, all of these things are made to feel sometimes by authority figures or parents or teachers or just our culture um, or ancestral patterns. Another way ancestral patterns interact. If you have like an ancestral belief that tells you um, it's, you know, if you speak up, you're going to be squashed then of course that part of you, this brilliant, beautiful speaker is going to feel like it has to be shoved into the shadow by your mind. Yeah. And um, it's amazing what feels like life and death when yeah. you're like two and three and five, I mean, and 25 and 50 and a hundred too, but like, especially when you're small, mm-hmm. things can feel so dire. And it's true, know. you know, for a small person because they're dependent yeah. on their parents. So it's not like it's a false belief. 
it's just unfortunately that part of us that makes that decision to survive out of fear gets stuck and, mm-hmm. and no like helping spirit can come in and undo that decision for us because we made it ourselves with our free will. So meanwhile, this part of ourselves is then stuck in the shadow and it's becoming just like it would if like you took a child and shoved it in a basement and there were like children playing upstairs every day and it would got to look at them outside the window occasionally through people, it would become jealous and twisted and distorted over time. Um, Because these parts of ourselves are forced to watch our life from the sidelines. So they manifest only often in these patterns of self-sabotage or um, intense attraction um, to, to people that we think will see that part of ourselves or bring that part of ourselves out without us consciously realizing that's why we're attracted. Um, and often just in, uh, again, a feeling of possession, but that's slightly different than the ancestral feeling of possession. It's more like total unconsciousness. Like you don't realize what you just did, but everyone in your life, all your best friends are like, dude, that wasn't okay. That was really terrible. It's like, what do you mean? I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. You know, like yeah. I don't understand why that was weird. And it's, yeah, there's it's a reflexiveness like to it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where it's just, you know, you, you, you run into a certain stimulus that stimulates that shadow piece, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's through desire or fear or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there's just this ref- reactive piece that happens mm-hmm. and you don't even notice it necessarily because because it's there to help you not notice in those situations, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just take you yeah. right offline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the work I do with shadow, it's, it's a lot about finding that part of yourself. And I would say that, you know, in my experience with shadow work, I don't think people can often do this work skillfully on their own that you yeah. really need either a practitioner or a community. Like the way I first did this work was again, in my shamanic community of the, the cycle teachings, the last mass community. And uh, we have a whole year that we spend focusing on pulling out sort of four kind of archetypal types of shadows that everyone has. And of course, what, how those show up is different for everyone, but there's sort of four main categories. And then what we do is we, create a mask to give a home to that shadow part. So it no longer has to live in the shadow. Um, And then as we're, and so we're working with certain helping spirits that are very good at helping us navigate the shadow realms. You can get totally lost in there. And, you know, because your mind is literally taken offline again and again. And then once we successfully retrieve it and put it in a mask, then we're dancing that mask, allowing that shadow to move us and animate us. So through our body, we can come to know that shadow and develop a new relationship with that energy. And then after the dance is over, put it back in the mask and put it away, maybe feed it occasionally. But um, I don't know if you ever saw the, uh, the Babadook, <laughs> but I felt like that movie was a great illustration of, of shadow process in a way. It's like this, mm-hmm. this monster in a sense that you're needing to get to know and really see and form a new relationship with and feed so over time, through your love and attention and care, it transforms from its enemy form into an ally form. And then you can begin to, just like with a soul part, move that ally into your life and see where it was meant to be going. Yeah. Um, but you don't want to do that right away. You don't want to jump to like, oh, great, I got the shot and I want to integrate it because it's still twisted and distorted. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And maybe it still has that switch that gets your brain offline real fast, exactly. right? Yeah. Really? Come on, come on. I, oh, where did that day go? I don't know what happened. <laughs> you know? How did I watch 22 hours of Netflix? Yeah. And sometimes what I've seen with people in this type of process too is they get, they, they get maybe overambitious with integrating the shadow part. And so they haven't done the work yet to cultivate a life in which it would be safe for them to embody that part of themselves. And so in that case, then the part goes right back in the shadow. Like you said, the switch gets flipped and then it starts coming out in maybe even more distorted ways. So mm-hmm. it's a lot about this care of work with our helping spirits and the mask and dance to slowly over the course of that year, transform these parts rather than trying to just like integrate them all at once. Yeah. I, I think that that's, um, I I mean I I certainly know my in various points in my life I've been in a hurry to finish these pieces right (laughs) you know because they're not fun right they're Mm -hmm. not ideal and you know like I spent a couple years working with a Jungian analyst and we did a lot of really great stuff you know along these lines through dreams and other things and you know it looking back I could see what a tremendous gift it was looking you know looking at it sort of trying to revision going through it. So it was just heart wrenching and difficult, you know, and, mm-hmm. and not comfortable. And, you know, there's nothing like, especially cause we were, we were doing a lot of dream work to like mm-hmm. wake up from these nightmares where my shadows are arising and showing themselves to me. Mm-hmm. And you just wake up with your heart pounding and you're sweating and you're just like, ah, I can't look at that. That's not mm-hmm. me. You know, it's so complicated. Right. But I think that it really does behoove everybody to, uh, to to take that time and really um, allow that to unfold because there is no rushing it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. And that's funny. I actually, uh, you mentioned dreams. That's one area where sometimes I see a lot of the different traditions that I'm part of intersect. Like all uh-huh. the spirits decide to show up for the dreams. <laughs> <laughs> they're, all, so, they're all just they're all just leaning at the leaning against the wall, pointing at something. Hey, how about you mm-hmm. do with that now, dude? How about that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I'd actually at one point um, used, I'd been going through a shadow process that had a lot to do with anger that I had locked Mm. down and uh, locked away and learning to allow that to come into my life in a healthy way. But as I began to continue to engage with other processes, I kind of forgot about that thread as we sometimes do in our transformational work and just focusing on other things. And so then... um, I was told actually um, with my um, Tata and Kimbanda, he was telling me that there would be uh, a series of dreams that were sent to me by one of the spirits of that tradition. And as I began to receive those dreams, I I, I forgot about that too. Um, At the time I was just had a lot going on in my life. Uh, And what was happening is I'd have these dreams. I was battling this, this person that was like chasing me and I'd be fighting them and like kicking them. And then finally I killed them in one of the dreams. And then I hid the body. (laughs) And then later I was at one of my um, shamanic retreats and I had a dream where one of my spirits from that tradition um, in Kibanda was there and I was in a room with him and he was sort of very seductive and, I realized that the police were coming to the house and they were coming for him, but they were going to find me because I had buried this body. And I re- it was like one of those weird continuous dreams. I remembered burying that body, yeah. but only in the dream space that I remember that this happened. And uh, 
So I woke up out of the dream and I, I, what I ended up having to do um, after some guidance from my teacher about that dream was go dig up that body. Um, and it was this very much similar to the shadow, shadow process I've been doing. I had to go and, into the woods and where I had buried this body in journey, um, going, entering back into my dreamscape. And um, what I found there was that what I had buried was my anger. Um, that, that I hadn't, like I was saying, I hadn't quite cultivated in my life the boundaries or practices I needed to be safe in being with that part of me yet. Mm-hmm. And so now that I had, after some other process, and it was time for me to dig that part up and my, you know, Kimbanda spirits were very happy to step forward to help me to remember that part of me because they're very mm-hmm. fiery, hot spirits that have a lot to do with these emotions of like anger and lust and creativity um, so they're right on there. So it's just one interesting example of how these, this work can intersect and how dream can be a great crossroads where a lot of these, these thing elements come together for me. Yeah. Well, and it also highlights how valuable, uh, having community or teachers or people you're checking in with are too, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's so easy to forget something. I was, I was journaling and, and reading cards for myself today. And something that I that I had decided on and done some work on like back in April resurfaced and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot to finish that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And it's like, you know, teachers and community can facilitate that in a way that it's easy it's it can be easier to not misplace those notions for as long, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like like you say in the dream, body still needs to be dealt with. It's it's not really <laughs> going anywhere. There's no avoiding it, right? Yeah. And what my teacher said to me at the time, actually, which was really valuable, was um, you need to go find that body and you need to determine, does this need to be buried in a way that it'll never be found or does this need to uh-huh. be brought back? And so it was, it needed to be reclaimed and brought back. But I like yeah. that you left that option too for me. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's easier when there's a choice sometimes, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. This thing that I don't want to do, you could, you could deal with it in this way or that way. <laughs> and then you get to be like, oh yeah, I got to deal with it this way. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair mm-hmm. enough. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. Yeah. And one, I think you bring up a great point about how important community is because community is certainly like a theme in my life. Um, that's incredibly important, but especially with shadow work, you are in a place when shadow patterns are coming up where everything you think know to be true is probably wrong. <laughs> or that the, that the, yeah. like you're, you're doing these things that are completely in your unconscious and so you cannot see how the patterns you're doing are harmful at everything. You, you think you're being yeah. super rational and exactly. all you're doing is rationalizing, right? And so if you don't have community that you've cultivated this level of love and trust with it, you can trust them more than you trust your, even your own sense of truth. It's really mm-hmm. hard to transform shadow patterns because you need someone who can hold that mirror up for you in a way that you can, you can trust them. Yeah. 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 And, and, and then, you know, further to kind of what you said earlier, and then you got to start doing a bunch of work on it. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. That's like, Oh yeah, there's my, there's my homework for the next three to six months. All right. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. will now work on that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not just about knowing it and seeing it. Definitely. <laughs> for sure. I, and I yeah. think that, that there's that, this sort of tendency that, that it's so human, right. To like, we hit the aha moment and we're like, Oh yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> and then we think we're done. Right. Yeah. 
Now I can make brand new choices because my mind understands this. Exactly. I'm liberated by the power of my consciousness. It's like, goodness, if you are that person, I don't want to hear about it because I'm so jealous. Exactly. Yeah. Bless your heart if you're that person. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's awesome. Well, thank you for uh, making time today to have this conversation. It's been really, really fascinating to, to jump through these different pieces and stuff. Um, where can people find you? And I, I understand you have a thing coming up. So maybe you want to mention that too, for people who are interested in some more of this kind of goodness. Yeah. Thanks. Um, people can find me at occupy-your-heart.com and there um, are listed my, you know, one-on-one shamanic healing work and also uh, classes that I offer. So the next class that's coming up in February um, actually it's February 10th, uh, is a five week class in emotional clearing. And I find that the emotional clearing work is a really excellent foundation for kind of all of the work we've been talking about today in terms of helping people to begin to really engage with their life as a teacher and integrate the wisdom of their body and their mind and their spirit and their heart as they track triggers or stuck places in their life to the place where they first started, where they, that pattern first got set up and then began to shift and change and transform them there using the wisdom of the body as their guidance. Amazing. It sounds really good. And uh, from people I know who've done work with you, uh, I hear great things. So if, that, if you feel called, go check it out for sure. Well, thanks again, Langston. It's been a, a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, I hope you've really enjoyed it. Uh, A big thanks to the lovely human beings who have put some wonderful reviews on iTunes for the podcast. Please do consider supporting the Patreon. You know, I sound like a PBS ad, but seriously, even a dollar helps. It all adds up towards being able to make all sorts of exciting things happen, both for yourself and for others. So head on over to patreon.com slash the hermit's lamp, or use the link in the show notes. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.